what we've been talking about is the concept of being the one and how in the movies, uh, Neo is, is discovered by Morpheus and Morpheus seems to think that Neo is something special. He seems to think that, that Neo has the power to do something really great and to free a lot of people. And over the course of the movie, you find out that he actually turns out to be the one. And, and then in the second movie, he's developed these incredible abilities like the power of flight. Um, he's, he's kind of escaped the world and has authority over the world. But the idea of the series The One is that we each recognize that we all kind of fit into some kind of plan like that, that every single one of us is designed as the one, that we are special creations of God Almighty, and that he's personally invested in your life and personally involved in shaping you to be somebody who comes to the rescue in a time of trouble. And so today what we're going to talk about is a kind of an army of ones, ones all around, that, that we all are the one, and that we all are uniquely qualified to do something unique and special, that you can do what I can't do, that Bridget can do what I can't do, that Ruth can do what I can't do, but I can probably do some things they can't do. And part of being the one is figuring out who the one is for you. Like, what does it mean for you to be the one? Not for me to be the one or for somebody else to be the one, but what does it mean for you and your destiny. We shared a couple, uh, three weeks ago Dave Heigl's quote about how the devil has one crappy tool in his crappy toolbox, and that, that that tool is one of mistaken identity, is that if he can make you see yourself for something you're not, he wins. Because what you are is a child of God. What you are is a special creation. What you are is a beautiful masterpiece of artistry. That's what you are. And if the devil can make you, or, or the, the forces of the world, or however you want to describe it, can make you see yourself as anything but that, you have been diminished from what you were intended to be. And so we've talked about what God's one fantastic tool is. So the devil has this terrible tool of making you see yourself as something you're not. And God's fantastic tool is this verse that, after this series, we won't be spouting this over and over, but it's the idea of Christ in you, the hope of glory. So it says that's the tool of God, and, and, and what it takes for you to maximize everything you were designed to be is this idea of Christ. If you go back and study the, the etymology of the word Christ, Christ literally translates as the anointed one. In the old days, when a king became king, they would pour oil over his head and pray a prayer of blessing over him. So the Christ is the one who has been anointed king. And so when we, talk, when we say Jesus Christ, that's not a name, it's a title. It's Jesus, the one who has been anointed to rule over everything. And this says, the one who has been anointed, the king who bowed his head before the Father and received that blessing as being king over all, Lord of lords, lives, can live in you, lives in you. And that makes you the one. That's the tool of God. To develop you to be everything you were designed to be, the tool of God is to get the most Christ in you that he can possibly get. The more we're conformed to the image of Christ, the more we become like him. I've probably shared this quote in here before. I, couldn't, I looked back on some sermons, and I don't remember, but John Willis Zumwalt, it's one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says, the first time that Jesus came in the flesh, he died for the lost of the world, gladly laying down his precious life that others might have true life. And then there's this amazing portion of the quote. He says, now that he's enfleshed in you, I wonder what he wants to do. So when Jesus came as the king of all, his idea was to help people. His idea was to get as much of God in people as possible. And what Scripture describes is that that same Jesus wants to live in you, wants to control you, wants to own you, possess you. You know, we talk about the word possession. 
Most of us are familiar with the exorcist, the, the exorcism of Emily Rose, all the movies about possession. And what happens when a demon possesses someone? That demon controls them, right? Controls their hands and feet, controls their voice, controls their eyes, roll back in their head, their head spins around, spit green pea soup, apparently. But when, it, when, when we talk about the word possession, we're talking about ownership, right? So what, what would it mean if the Spirit of God possessed you? Like if, if the one who is Christ, if the one Christ owned you, controlled your hands and feet, controlled your mouth, controlled your eyes, controlled where you go, what you do with your time, what vocation you choose, if he possessed you, what would he do with your time? And what he would do would be rescuing people. That's, how he, that's, that's what Jesus would do. That, Jesus wants to take control of you in order to bring the kingdom of God to people everywhere. That's, that's your destiny in life. So being the one means doing the one stuff. If you, we can talk about being the one and you can identify as, okay, I'm a special creation of God designed by him with a particular purpose, but it doesn't stop there. It's like if Neo's out there somewhere and Morpheus calls for help, Neo, if you're out there, I could really use your help. And he, he's sitting somewhere eating some potato chips going, yeah, but I'm the one, man. I'm awesome. Yeah, but I could really use your help here, but I'm so awesome. It's like, no, you're not. You're just a big dummy, right? So we can't just stop at recognizing our identity in Christ. It, it, it's, it's, it's allowing that identity to shape and mold us and, and, and send us in a particular direction in life. There's a couple things the one does. One is he helps good guys, and two, he whoops bad guys. We're going to talk about both. Jesus the Christ, there's, there's multiple passages in Scripture where uh, it talks about why Jesus came and what, what, he, what he did, what Jesus did. And I want to share a few of them with you really quickly because this will help us uh, determine what we're supposed to do. So it says, God did not send his son in John 3, it's uh, actually 3.17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what does the one do? The one comes to save the world. We've talked about that word saved in here a lot. It's sozo in the original language, which means life. It means, it's, it, it means bringing soundness to every area of life. So the work of Jesus was to come into the world to bring soundness in the lives of people everywhere. That was what Jesus came to do. And of course, if we believe the one lives in us, what does that mean in how we spend our time and how we spend our focus? Again, in John, it says the law came through Moses. So the rules were, were communicated through Moses early on. It says, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to share grace and truth. In John 10, it says, I have come that they may have uh, Zoe life, which we've talked about, life and have it to the fullest. So Jesus says, I have come that they might have real, lasting, eternal life that starts here, that, and, and we've talked about this before, that goes back into the past, takes over the present, and modifies the future. That the work of Jesus was bringing life, the life of God, into every moment of a person's life, and it even works retroactively. That's the stuff Jesus did. That's the stuff the one did. When Jesus started his ministry, he says God anointed him. There's that word anointed again. That means the pouring of oil over someone to symbolize a status. He says God anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. So if we look at these passages and we figure out what, what's, what's the good stuff that God did, he was setting people free. He was bringing life to people. He was bringing that so-so enduring life. 
He was bringing grace and truth into other people's lives. So if we're going to talk about being the one because the one lives in us, then what does that mean for how we spend our time? What does it mean for our character and, and our direction in life and how we choose a vocation and how we think about even going to church? There's just It, it, it changes everything when we realize Christ is in me and he wants to do something. And what he wants to do is bring freedom to people. That allows us to help the good guys, but it also helps us acknowledge the bad stuff. So we talked about whooping the bad guys. I'm, I, I don't want to create an us versus them mentality that the non-Christians are over there and the Christians are over here. I don't, I don't even actually believe that. I have theological reasons for, in some sense, not embracing that mentality. But what we see in these passages is that the, the villains that the one is trying to attack are kind of listed on the screen. It's blindness, poverty, untruth, a lack of grace, oppression, captivity, death, and condemnation. It means as the special creation of God that he's designed you to be, you recognize that these are bad things that you want to do something about with your life. It's very easy just to binge on Netflix and eat chips and, and move on with life and not care about what's going on in the world. But what scripture would teach is that when the Messiah, the, the, the anointed one, lives in you, he changes what you care about. He changes what your passions are. And so what we find is that there's things we have to attack. There's bad guys in our lives that we need to, to look at and think about. If we're going to let God use us as rescuers, use us to bring this life into, the other, pe into other people's lives, there's a whole list of stuff that we got to deal with. And it's not a pretty list. It's things like apathy. Boy, that, that'll just shut you down right there. Enough apathy will just ruin you. Laziness, fear, security, security and insecurity. And what I, what I meant by that is some of us strive for security. As long as we feel safe and comfortable, there's a roof over our heads. Like that's, that's our goal in life. And security can be an enemy. But then insecurity of not seeing yourself as the one can also be an enemy. If you're always worried about what other people think and whatever other people, how other people view you, that can ruin you as well. There's just all kinds of enemies, pride, selfishness, power. I, I heard somebody recently say that Abe Lincoln said that the, the, the test of a man is not how he reacts under adversity. Uh, everybody experiences adversity. He said the test of a man is what he does with power. Because what happens, in, and this has been scientifically shown, that when people get power, what they do is they start to unconsciously look at other people and try to gauge how powerful they are. And people that they deem having no power, they dismiss. This is, just, this is scientific fact. To the point where people who are powerful don't even make eye contact with people they deem less powerful. So power can be a very good thing, but power can also ruin you. And then finally, anger or distraction. The point being that it doesn't stop with just recognizing that we have an identity. It's letting that identity out. It's letting that identity change our laziness, change our anger, change how we view power and the hunger for power and why we even want power. Power can be clearly powerful. Power can be important. But if power is the end game, it can ruin you. So again, we go back to how do we do this? And it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's letting Christ invade you and letting him take over. So I have three tips that I'm going to share pretty quickly that I think will help you uh, in this path of letting Christ take over. But what I, what I almost want to say 
is, is don't get bent out of shape about the steps to get there. It's, it's almost just like having an open invitation. How many, how many people in their life have legitimately at some point just said, Christ, Jesus, I am yours? That, that, we, could, we could almost end there. It's, it's, because he does stuff. When you pray, he responds. When you say, take over, guess what he has a tendency to do? He has a tendency to take over. And so I, I, I'm going to share some tips, but, but mostly I just, I, I, I just wanted to share that it's like, it's like an openness to what he wants. And that will complete your identity and your oneness. And that's, that's where it's all at. But a, a few tips that may help is, number one, know your parts. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 12 that talks about, uh, it, it compares the, the church, the people of God, to uh, the anatomy of the human body. And it says, there is one body but many parts. And I know you're all looking here saying, I don't want to be the urinary bladder. I don't either. There's one body but many parts. But somebody has to be, just so you know. Did you just nominate somebody? Did you just say Shelby is going to be the bladder? She volunteered? See, that's what we're looking for. There is one body but many parts. But all its parts make up one body. It's the same with Christ. So again, we're, we're talking about the one being Christ. It's the same with him. We were all baptized by one Holy Spirit, and so we are formed into one body. When we were in Christ, we become a part of a collective, an army of ones, ones all around. And, and what Christ, and I, I might even put this, I did, I did because I'm brilliant. What Christ in you looks different than Christ in me. And it's so important that we each recognize that, that, that each of us plays a different part in this grand scheme of God bringing the light of life into the world. And as the one, my hope for you is that you will take a serious look at who, what part do I play in that? What part do you play in that? And they're going to be different parts. I would encourage you just to say to God, who am I? What, what do you want from me? Because whatever you want is yours. But then let him do that work in you, making you the one that you are, not what someone else is. How do you do that? I did, it a few, <laughs> I did it a few weeks ago. I gave you a collection of R's that I thought were important, and I said as a pastor, I'm never going to do this again, and I just flat lied. <laughs> I, have a bunch, I have a bunch of P's for you today. How do you fill in the puzzle? How, how do you, what, what belongs in this picture of your life? When it comes to being the one, when it comes to your destiny, when it comes to God's design for your life, how, how do you put those puzzle pieces? Because there's all kinds of ways you can go in life. There's all kinds of directions you can take. How, how, you know, how do you figure out who you are? And I, I made up a list of a bunch of P's, and it, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. But I think you, you look at kind of a, a collective of all the pieces being put into place. Oh, that was alliteration already. Pieces put into place of the puzzle so that you can take your past and personality and practical skills. This is so dorky. This is, in some sense, the shape of what your puzzle looks like. And it's made up of a lot of factors. And I just, it, it's just a few, but part of it is your past. People, people have different experiences different histories, and they shape who you are. They shape your personality. They shape your practical skills. 
So your past will shape, in some sense, how you live this life out. And your past, in some sense, will shape what God does when he enters and comes in and shapes everything. Is He's going he's to manipulate your past. He's going to take what your past is. And we, we've shared a few times recently that God is in the business of making ashes beautiful. It says he gives beauty in exchange for ashes. And so whatever your past is, we talked about failure last week, whatever your failures have been, he has a, he has a way of taking those and, and weaving them into some tapestry that turns out gorgeous, that turns out beautiful. Your personality, I, you know, there's, there, I can just say for my own life, any job that is tedious, I can't do. Uh, I, it's not that I can't do, it's just that I hate it so much that it's just hard to drive myself to do it. So like data entry, for example, not my personality. Uh, Lacey is, is thankfully a, a helper to me. I, I have to do the, the questions for our community groups every week, and every Saturday she texts me and says, did you do this? And I think, oh, I don't like you, but thank you. <laughs> it's, it, you know, there's just, there's just parts of your personality that shape what, what you're good at, what you can do, what you want to do, and it's okay to listen to those parts. Sometimes we think that we have to let go of our personality in order to be the one, and it's almost the opposite of that, is that there's, there's people who are responsible, like Lacey, and there are people who are like me. But we work together as a collective to make sure things get done. And so part of it is just figuring out your personality, your practical skills. And then I think your passions play a big part in it. Uh, there, there's, there's people all throughout the building that have, have communicated to me things that they're passionate about. And a good portion of the time, they're things that I'm not very passionate about. And yet, that's how we operate as a church, is you get some, up excited about something that somebody else isn't excited about, and then a few other people will, but your passions will start to play into your pulling or your calling, some people will use. And I, I want to be careful about that word. I always want to define that word. But sometimes you'll find yourself pulled in a direction. And I think those are, those are directions worth exploring. I think when you say to God... I am yours, which I hope you have, and if you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. If you get nothing else out of this, go get by yourself somewhere and say, you made me, the breath in my lungs is yours, every thought I have is a gift from you, I give myself back to you. That's step number one. But when you do that, he has this tendency to, like, like the song that Andrew sang this morning, like a potter in the wheel, that he just big pile of clay, he starts shaping it into what he wants it to look like, making something even more beautiful out of it. And in some sense, he'll start to pull you towards something. And some, some pullings are inexplainable. Why do I keep thinking about the people of Zambia? Why, why, why? Or it may be something as simple as I can't get the people who are hungry in my community out of my head. And whatever those pullings are, I would say respond to them. And I, I'm not going to embarrass these people, and I did in some sense, let them know I would be talking about them, and it shaped what I will say about them. But I just love Joseph and Molly Vaughn. And, yeah, it's okay to clap. And this is a couple that I think is doing a really, really good job of all of this, of taking all of this and turning it into being the ones. Uh, I, I, I won't give too many details, but... On, on Monday nights, they lead one of our community groups. On every other Wednesday night, they go to Priscilla's place and they interact with the girls there. On Thursday night, they're leading our freedom group, uh, which you'll hear more about in, in the coming weeks. But the freedom group is for people who have life-controlling issues or even habits. And it, it isn't necessarily just addiction. 
Uh, people would think that a lot of times, but it's not. It could, it could be I binge watch too much TV, I am too self-centered and I find myself constantly thinking about myself or I'm wrapped up in fear all the time of what people think about me. There's just all kinds of things that control you, but they're leading our freedom group. And a lot of the reason that they're equipped to do that has to do with their past. It has to do with what, what their life has been so far. It has to do with their personalities. I'll t I sit across from Joseph. We have breakfast together every now and then. And when he starts talking about addiction recovery and starts talking about the steps that people can take to find their identity, something just fires up in me. And he has this personality. And I'm sure it would happen the same if I sat across from Molly. We just don't eat together as often. But there's something in his personality that has really, in an interesting way, equipped him to help people in this area. Their practical skills, their passions, and their pulling are all lining up in this direction. And I'm just excited to, be, to get to watch it. And, but do you see, it's not my past. It's not my passions. It's not my personality or my skills. It's God making this collective army of ones. It's all, the, all people working together to make a difference. So the question is, what is your past and personality and practical skills and passions and pullings? What is it that God would have you do? And it, it's, it's important that you ask those questions and start to look at it. Now, what if you're not there? I, I know Joseph and I have talked about even a podcast, uh, things like that, of, of taking these things to a, the next level. So it's always going to be a journey. But what if you're kind of at the beginning of this journey of just trying to figure out where do you fit in in this army of ones? Like, you know, wh what is my purpose in the church? What is my purpose in life? What, what part am I playing in bringing the light of God to the world? And it may be a question you've never even asked before. Again, I'd encourage you to ask the question. But what do you do if you're kind of at the beginning of the journey? And really, no matter where you're at, it's just the finding the next step. And sometimes that's specific. So, so in, in Joseph and Molly's case, there may be specific things that God is filling their mind with that will direct them down a journey, and they've, they've got to take the next step on that. For some of you, it may be, I, I really don't know. And if you really don't know, then there's other steps that you can take that I think will be helpful. And I, I compiled a list of stuff that I think are just kind of daily steps. And, and I'm not saying all of these fit in to every person's life every day, but if you don't know the specifics of your journey, then work on your character. If you don't know the specific destination of what kind of ministry you should do, then work on your personality. Work on, on how you see the world. Work on your daily interactions with people to develop you to be the best you that you can be. And as you do that, then I think God will start to give you more details. So I just want to talk about some of these on, on the screen. Uh, mission trips. I know Ruth Sauter. And actually, Ruth, I had an announcement on here for you. Hey, how are you doing? You good? I'm going back to the announcements. There it is. Hey, Ruth is going on a mission trip to where? Romania. Romania when? I'm leaving May 5th. I'm in June the 5th. Okay, June the 5th, and she is going to be working with people who need art supplies, and they're for kids ages? 5 to 16. 5 to 16. Thank you for doing my announcement for me. So uh, she has determined that this is something she wants to do. It's a direction she's taking. It may, it may or may not end up being a lifelong pursuit, but she found out about this need, and she said, hey, I could, I could help there. So she's asked me to ask you guys if you could help, and for the next couple weeks, is that fair? She will be at the next table as you leave the service, and she needs art supplies for that age group. And it can be markers, it can be uh, construction paper, it can be all kinds of stuff, but if you would provide art supplies that she can take with her. But do you see, that now she's going on a mission trip, 
She's going to help them with what they're doing as individuals with different personalities and different paths. And now it opens up the door for you to be involved. And this is the kind of thing I'm talking about, is you may not know the specific direction. You may not know exactly where you're going to go in life. And most of us never do. I'm pastoring the church now, but will I do it 20 years from now? I kind of hope so, but I don't know. We don't know where the journey ends, but there are steps you can take. It's say yes when somebody invites you on a mission trip. Say yes when they say, hey, we need art supplies. Acts of generosity. I've always thought if I was a business owner. So let's say I'm a mechanic. You can say it if you want. You're a mechanic. That was dumb. Acts of gener- I've always thought if I was a mechanic or a doctor or anybody who owned a business, a, a retail salesperson uh, owning my own business, I've always thought how cool it would be if one out of every hundred clients, you gave them totally free service. Uh, so, and you, no matter what, if they need a total engine replacement or just an oil change, you say, you were our hundredth customer, we always give our hundredth customer absolutely free service. Why do we do that? Because we think God is generous and we want to show people his generosity. I always thought how cool that would be. And you know what? I make 1% less. Over time, that's what I make is 1% less to do that. But if you did, so when I talk about acts of generosity, it's thinking outside of the box on how can I serve people every single day with my life, with my vocation, with, with my money, and so forth. Uh, acts of integrity could be the same thing. What, do the right thing when nobody's watching. Vocational surrender. Again, if, if God is putting Zambia in your head and you say, but, but I'm a successful engineer, you need to let him, you need to allow that tension to say, but I would, I would be willing, I'm not saying you should, but to say to God, I would be willing to let go of engineering to go to Zambia. Is that what you want? So your vocation, the, the, the conference we just got back from, the Q conference, talked about vocational narcissism, how we are identified by our vocation and how afraid we are to let anything go in that area. It means saying, my vocation is flexible. It's yours too. Everything is yours. Confession, if you've got something eating at you, telling someone about it can help. Preaching or teaching, it might terrify you. But if you're feeling a pulling, if you've got personal skills, if you've got passions, you're, you're starting to think that maybe this is something I should do, then you should look for opportunities. Praying in public or private. My mom, uh, it's a long story. When I, in college, I got involved with some Christian people and started getting serious about Jesus, and she thought I was involved in a terrible cult and would just, I mean, just berate me all the time about why, you know, why are you making these decisions? These people are lunatics. To, and, and then years later, she just loved Jesus. But every time my mom would pray publicly, so we could be in a public prayer meeting all holding hands, every time she prayed publicly, she would just sob, like it, just uncontrollable fits of crying. But she knew that part of being in community is sharing prayer together, so she would try to do it over and over. And I don't know that she ever broke it. I mean, so she would have this fear of what people thought. She would have this apprehension about praying in public. But I, I'm a believer that when you pray in public, and it, there's, there, there's a fine line. Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you pray, hide in your closet. Uh, it's, it's not about the motive of being seen. But I'm also, Jesus would also stand up in public and pray. So he obviously didn't forbid it. But I think praying in public, praying out loud with people is transformational. In some sense, it says, I'm for real about this stuff. And so, so my point is this. All of this stuff can help you down that daily path if you don't know where the journey ends, and none of us do. It means every single day, every step of the way, 
We say, Jesus, I'm yours. What do you want me to do today? Even if I have all these enemies that we talked about, apathy. I don't want to pray in public. I don't want to confess. I, I just want to sit here and watch my show. Laziness, fear. I'm afraid of what people will think. Even if we have all these bad guys in our lives, we have to learn how to conquer those bad guys to take the step-by-step to walk the journey that God has for us. I also want to encourage you to go north. I've read some books on... One of the most fascinating books I ever read was a a biography of Genghis Khan. And Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun uh, are contemporaries in people's minds, even though they were separated by about 800 years because their war tactics and their savagery and their barbarism were were kind of a shared trait. But my wife, we're, we're leaving to go on vacation to Turkey tomorrow, so... So tomorrow I will think about you guys not at all. <laughs> but she's been reading this book about uh, the area we're going to be at and, and their history. And one of the things she's reading about is Attila the Hun. And Attila the Hun uh, deemed himself and was kind of universally acknowledged as the scourge of God. The scourge being the Roman whip that would take the flesh off of people. So Attila the Hun was known as the one who was, be, was punishing the world. And kind of his life mission was to wipe out the Roman Empire. And he was succeeding at that. He had started in Asia and was just moving into Europe and systematically destroying places. And Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun, their, their tactics were brutal. Um, they, they would do things like capture a few scouts and take them in front of a village. And then, and there's two children in the front row, so thanks for that. Uh, I won't describe exactly what they did, but... They would brutally torture people so that the castles could watch and then say, either open your gates, in which case we'll work with you, or we're going to come in and destroy you and do what we just did to them to all of you. And many castles would just open their gates. I mean, just terror tactics. Uh, They would draw and quarter people. It's just, I can't describe the stuff that they did, but they were terrorizing people. And what was happening in Rome is Attila the Hun had started to move into northern Italy and was headed south to Rome. This is scary stuff. And the pope at the time, Pope Leo I, got together with an entourage and headed north. He left Rome, he left a degree of safety in the army, and he went to meet Attila the Hun. And I have to think that that would be just terrifying because one of Attila the Hun's things was if a Roman citizen pleads for mercy, those are the ones we kill first. There was no quarter given by Attila the Hun, no mercy. In fact, asking for mercy got you in deeper than had you stood up to him. He he admired that. He respected it. But here you've got the Pope going to him saying mercy. And it had to be one of the most terrifying journeys that anyone ever took because Attila the Hun tortured people. And yet he went north. And here's here's what's so fascinating. And this is the very first time a pope was ever called great. It's the very first time in history that anyone said pope. They called him Pope Leo the Great after this. He goes up. He meets with Attila the Hun. No historian knows what was said in that meeting. Nobody really knows. There's all kinds of speculation. There's all kinds of ideas. But nobody has any idea. But what we do know from history is Attila the Hun took his armies, turned around, and left Italy never to return. We don't know what happened in that tent that day. We don't know what happened as they discussed. But we know a guy who was terrified. He could have gone with apathy. He could have gone with laziness. He could have gone with fear. But instead, he went forward. He, he moved north. And so 
You hear about mission trips, you hear about conferences, you hear about the opportunity for confession, or even prayer at the end of a service, or the opportunity to pray out loud in front of people, and you just, you have this sense that you want to stay behind the walls of Rome. You have this sense that you want to just stay comfortable where you are, and I'm telling you, you will never be the one that you were intended to be staying behind walls. You'll never be the one operating under that mentality, but instead it's moving forward, being unafraid. This author that I had never heard of, maybe you guys have, but it was still a great quote, said it's okay to be scared. Being scared means you're about to do something really, really brave. This is an assumption because being scared doesn't necessarily mean that. But if you change your mentality to say when I'm scared, that's when I become brave. When I feel apathetic, that's when I'm going to move. When I see the bad guy, that's when I'm going to help the good guy. It means making the changes necessary. And then finally, I want to I share with you something we saw at Q Conference. They did a movie premiere uh, for a movie called I'll Push You. And I'll, I'm just going to share the trailer with you, and then I have a few thoughts. Hola. That's been something that's so rare. I haven't seen a friendship like that before.
So we saw the movie, I'll Push You, at, at, at a, a pre-showing at, at the Q conference. And my first thought, having seen the trailer and then seeing the movie, was, and this is, this is just how selfish I am, my first thought was, nobody's ever loved me like that. <laughs> and then my second thought was, I've never loved anybody close to that. I, you know, I think about my, my wife, who I, she's number one on the list of people that I love, but if she developed a neurological disease like this and ended up, for all intents and purposes, quadriplegic, you know, how would that affect my life? And how, how would it affect getting her from the living room to the bedroom? And, and here you've got a friend that, that the, 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 the guy in the wheelchair wanted to go on this pilgrimage at El Camino, which is 500 miles over mountains. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's the Pyrenees Mountains. And his response was, I'll push you. And so... So A, I encourage you to see the movie when it comes out. But B, when it comes to who you are and being the one, this sums it up. Like who, who you were designed to be, this, this special creation that God created you to be, um, he created you to be a pusher. He created you to, not a drug pusher, that sounded very weird. He, he created you to be a person that says, I will help you get there. So when Jesus came, he came to set the oppressed free. He came to heal blind eyes. He came... To, to help the poor. And so if we're going to be the one, and we're going to be an army of ones, it means each one of us kind of taking that mentality of, I'll push you. I, I, I will lay down. I can't imagine the grueling torture of hauling his buddy 500 miles across northern Spain. And yet he did it. He, sa he said, I'll do it. And that's what we find about Jesus, is that that was his mentality. It says, even the Son of Man came not to be ministered to. There's your church involvement. Why do you come to church? You can think about that a little bit later. <laughs> Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. You are an incredible special creation of God, and God desi desires to fill you with himself so that you can give up your life and minister to many. I would encourage you to find out what that journey looks like and go on that journey.